Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to Jerus Nuisance, episode two. Um, I haven't recorded for a few weeks simply because I had the lockdown blues and I was equally lazy. And so today I felt inspired and decided to take up my microphone and start recording. Um, it's a Sunday today, so I think it would be best if I started with a little bit uh, of a confession, and that is that the title of this episode is clickbait to an extent. Um, not all of it is clickbait. I will be discussing um, Advocate Buzisiwem Kwebane a little bit, but she general theme of the episode is the office of the public protector um and the reason that i did this um is that i know that south africans love a good good guy bad guy story right and we are constantly trying to find ways of understanding our democracy through the the lens of um, hero villain right and for some people the good advocate is a hero for some people she's a villain um, but what both of what both sides um, do not care for is that firstly both sides have an idea or have opinions, have views rather, about her motivations and why she does what she does, but no one seems interested, right, in in evaluating her motivations as against her office. So what about the things that she does is informed by the powers that her office has or, um, or the, the position that she occupies in the constitutional infrastructure, right? Um, and I find that to be unfortunate um, because I think we there is a decent conversation that could be had um, about the office of the public protector, the powers that it has, how it functions, and and so on and so forth, without necessarily delving into personalities and ascribing motives to, you know, um, the incumbent when we don't know what her state of mind is and uh, what motivates her um, to make the decisions that she she makes. So, um, as I stated in the last episode, this podcast is meant to allow me to put ideas out there, um, get some kind of engagement, which, by the way, I only received like five, um, five, five what? I really... I only received feedback from five people, um, five or so people. Um, 
So I just assume everyone else was happy with the first episode. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I received very good feedback, um, constructive feedback. And so I will be, you know, implementing that going forward and hopefully um, it will start showing. Um, but part of the reason I started this podcast was to put ideas out there, get feedback and hopefully develop um, something in the form of uh, of a written essay or article, preferably an article on questions that interest me. So one of the questions or one of the topics that interest me is developments or changes in constitutional law after the constitutional court's judgment in the Ngandla matter. Now, anyone who knows me or has followed me on Twitter for a while knows that I have very strong opinions about Ngandla. Um, and I wrote an article called Why Big Cases Make for Bad Law. I've included the link in the um, episode description. You want to check it out. And in it, I argued on a very um, almost superficial, not in no way in depth, I argued um, that the Nganja judgment was um, wrongly decided. And so this is a follow-up on that but no longer um, necessarily just focusing on that, but looking at what the Ngandla judgment has meant for the development of constitutional law, um, specifically as it relates to, obviously, the Office of the Public Protector. Um, and whether the current trend in litigation is likely to lead the constitutional court to um, revisit Ndandla and provide some guidance and clarity around the issues that um, arise from it. And I think by now everyone is familiar with the background to um, the Ndandla decision. Um, briefly, what happened was that the public protector um, investigated allegations that uh, the president or public that that public money was being used to upgrade the president's private residence, um, and that the president had benefited um, unjustifiably um, therefrom. Right, so. She then found that to be the case and uh, ordered, amongst other things, that the president pay back a portion of uh, the cost of the, the, the upgrades to, the, to his private residence, that he discipline uh, or reprimand the ministers that were involved in the project. Um, and yeah, so. So those were the two key findings uh, that that came out of that report. A lot of other things happened after that. There was a a report by 
the minister of police who cleared the president of any wrongdoing. Then there was an, a report by an ad hoc committee of parliament, which also of the National Assembly, which also cleared the president. And basically, everyone at that stage was of the opinion that the public protector's orders or remedial action taken in terms of, of that report was not binding, right? And so those reports, the one by the Minister of Police and the one by um, the ad hoc committee in, in the National Assembly were meant to clear the president of any wrongdoing, basically to overturn um, the public protector's findings and remedial action. What followed was a review um, Oh, yeah. No, sorry. There was no review in this case. But what happened is that um, I think it was the D, either the DA or the EFF that sought uh, direct access to the Constitutional Court. Um, and the, the legal question that eventually came up before the Constitutional Court was whether um, the public protector's uh, remedial action remedial orders were binding, right? So how it was reported in the media was whether or not the president should pay back the money. And that became like the slogan, um, the, the rallying cry was kind of like pay back the money, pay back the money. But obviously the question that arrived before the constitutional court was uh, different. It was whether or not the public protector's office had binding powers. So the court then held that the public protector's powers were binding. Um, and it did so for reasons that are, at least to me, unclear. Uh, but one of them seems to be that in order for her to be effective at her job, um, she needed to have binding powers. Uh, not sure that's a good enough reason to give up binding powers, but that's what the court uh, did. Now, in my article, I discuss um, several issues that I have with the case. Right, the one is um, that the court employed outcome-based reasoning. Right. So what outcome-based reasoning is, is that you look at a case and then you decide on the results that you want to see. Basically, who do you want to win, right, at, at, at the end of the day? And then from there, you work backwards to justify your decision, right? So instead of um, starting at a particular point and arriving at your conclusion. You start with the conclusion and work your way back to the, um, the justification. Now, how we see this is, one, the idea that the public protector's powers have to be binding in order for them to be effective, right? And that, of course, we know is not true because 
the public protector in I think um twenty ten or so had conducted an investigation into the then National Police Commissioner um General Bekitele um into his dealings with businessman Rusha Bangu. Um in terms of which um Bekitele had leased I think an office in Pretoria and another one in Durban um as headquarters for the police in 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 those places. And those leases were found to be irregular um, and unlawful. And on that basis, the president, uh, President Zuma back then, then uh, suspended him and instituted inquiry an inquiry into his fitness for office, which eventually led to him being dismissed, right? And this was at a time when no one had ever, or no one was seriously suggesting that the public protector's powers um, were binding, right? And the second thing that shows us that the court employed outcome-based reasoning um, is the, the order, right? So one of, the things, as I said, is that the the cases was reported in the media was that it was about whether or not the president would have to pay back the money, right? And the court in employing outcome-based reasoning, and I'm not saying this is what they did, but this is how I think, or this is what I think they, they did is they said, look, we have to um, get the president to pay back the money. Right? And in order, so the order to, 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 to pay back the money was obviously in the report. But in order for them to reach the, the, to reach the point that they ordered the president to pay back the money, that means that the public protector's powers have to be binding, right? Which is mistaken because the court could have ordered the president to pay back the money anyway without um, finding that the public protector's powers were binding because it derives its authority to do so from the constitution. The court can fashion any order that is just an and 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 equitable, right? So if the court were to come to a different conclusion as to or come up with different reason why reasons why the president had to pay back the money, instead of finding that the public protector's powers were binding, it could have done so, and it still would have been um, legal, right? Uh, but because the courts steps are already predetermined by its outcome. It was how I read it, um, the next logical step, right? The other thing is that the Office of the Public Protector is a Chapter 9 institution, right? So Chapter 9 institutions are institutions that support democracy. And they are 
the Office of the Public Protector, the South African Human Rights Commission, the Commission for the Promotion and Protection of the Rights of Cultural, Religious and Linguistic Communities, the Commission for Gender Equality, the Auditor General, um, and the Electoral, Electoral Commission, right? Now, none of these bodies have binding powers. The SA Human Rights Commission is charged with the administration of the Equality Act, right? So, and how it works is that whenever they find that you have transgressed the Equality Act in some way, they will uh, approach the equality or the equality court for an order, right? And that's just how everyone understands the office to work, right? It doesn't make the office any less effective because it has to go to court to get an order um, compelling someone to do something. Um, but somehow that the 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 idea that if, if the public protector's powers were not binding, it would not be effective, um, kind of overshadows this reality, right? The second thing is that um, the Auditor General recently got new um, powers, right, uh, by way of an amendment to the Auditor General Act, and if that's the name of the act. Um, but those are different in the sense that they are established by statute, right? And statutory power is already um, limited uh, by, it's already limited in, 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 in its scope and its breadth, right? But the public protector's powers, the court says, are constitutional powers. So they're constitutional powers that are binding. Right? So in this class of chapter nine institutions, the public protector is the only institution that has binding powers. And binding powers that are sourced in the constitution, right? But the court does not explain to us why that is so and why what makes it different from the other um, chapter nine institutions. So it doesn't explain why, what makes the public protector's powers binding as opposed to uh, it being required like the SA Human Rights Commission to go to court whenever someone doesn't, uh, you know, implement um, binding or doesn't implement remedial action taken in terms of a report.
so just to offer a brief comment, I I'm, like I don't pretend to have always held the belief that the Gandhra judgment was wrongly decided or the Gandhra matter was wrongly decided. Um, and I, I mean, I praised the outcome of the decision when it came out, uh, as did most people. Um, and I think one of the few people to speak publicly, um, to voice the opposition uh, to the judgment uh, was Komazomu Shigaro from UCT, who warned against you know, granting very wide powers, very wide binding powers to the Office of the Public Protector based on, again, the personality uh, of the incumbent at the time. And, you know, I think the Ganda judgment just shows um, or is the perfect example of the kind of exasperation that the courts felt um, during the Zuma years um, about the lack of accountability for the president and the executive in general, and the fact that they were then pushed to the very limits of their powers and what they could do, right? And so we find that a lot of the judgments that came out of that time, specifically that um, from about 2015, 2016, when all of these cases were now just filling the court rolls because, um, you know, the opposition parties and civil society were just trying to get some form of accountability um, for the actions of the president. And one of those cases, of course, or one of the first cases after the Ngandla judgment, after um, the Concord declared that the public protection's powers were binding, was um, the case of the state capture in which in which the public protector directed that one the president had to appoint a commission of inquiry two that the person to head that commission of inquiry would be appointed by the chief justice and not the president for the reason for that uh, was that the state capture or the commission of inquiry would have to would have at its as its core focus um, the relationship or the alleged improper relationship between uh, President Zuma and the Gupta family. Right. So the president took that report on review and the court, um, the Pretoria High Court said uh, well, he argued firstly that um, the power to appoint a commission of inquiry is discretionary and it's an original power granted exclusively to him by the constitution and that he should be both be 
be able to decide whether or not to appoint a commission and to decide who who should head that commission, right? The court says, no, the public protector in terms of Ngandla, right? Mind you, the Nganda judgment did not say this, but this is what the court said. The court says, if we read Nganda and we understand it, and we understand that the, the public protector has these wide powers, these wide binding constitutional powers, we understand that she is then able to direct the exercise of discretionary powers. So she has the power to direct the president to exercise a discretionary power in a particular way. But two, she's also able to modify the, the way in which that power is exercised, right? Which speaks to the second point about the appointment. She's able to say, you must appoint a commission of inquiry and you and the head of that inquiry must be appointed by or must be chosen rather, must be chosen by the chief justice, right? So those are the two principles that that judgment establishes. Those then become important for when we consider a, 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 a recent judgment of the same court in the Bosasa matter. So in the Bosasa case, the public protector had found that um, they had found suspicion of money laundering um, in, involved in the, in Bosasa's donation to uh, President Ramaphosa's ANC campaign, presidential campaign. Right. And in that report, she then directed um, the National Director of Public Prose Prosecutions to both um, investigate the matter further and to report back to her about what steps would be taken and presumably to you know, uh, report back on whether or not uh, prosecutions would be would be undertaken, right? And the NTPP pretty much put forward the same kind of arguments about discretionary powers, which um, the NDPP has, right? Uh, NDPP decides whether or not to prosecute, decides whether or not to uh, bring charges. And that's all part of her um, prosecutorial discretion, prosecutorial powers that are granted by the Constitution, right? And she rightly says that the public protector cannot interfere with the function of her, of her office, which is what the Constitution says and which is what the NPA Act says. But the public protector makes the argument that, look, this court has previously said that my office has the power, one, to direct the exercise of discretionary power, but to direct how that power should be exercised, right? And, or to, yeah, or to modify um, 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 how that power is, 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 is exercised. 
And faced with that argument from precedent, the court had three options. One, it could affirm and say, yes, the public protector has the power to direct um, the exercise of discretionary power. Or two, distinguish and say, those facts in the previous case are not the same as those facts in this case, and therefore we are departing from that decision of three, overrule, right? Overrule and say we were completely wrong. Now, the court says it distinguishes this case from the previous case because the previous case um, involved a conflict of interest on the part of the president because he was going to appoint um, a judge to head a commission that would have to investigate him, right? And he had a material interest in, in, in the outcome of that investigation, which on its own, right, just casts aspersions on, I mean, the judge that the president was going to appoint um, had already been appointed, right? To the bench had already been a judge before was appointed by the JSC, which is the um, body that's made up of judges, lawyers, and politicians that appoints judges, and uh, would ordinarily be presumed to be independent, right? So, there, if there was no reason for the judge prior to being appointed as head of the commission to be suspected of being anything but independent. Why should that be the case when they're appointed to lead a commission? In any case, I'd agree. So the court shies away from the fact that it has previously said that what the public protector did in this case is completely constitutional and it's fine and it's permissible, right? So now, it's backing away from that position because it's no longer um, convenient in the sense that you have a president now who is largely, I mean, um, respectful of the rule of law and so on and so forth, but also just shows you that these are not general principles that were being applied at the time. It was, you know, jurisprudence, ad hoc jurisprudence, um, very like only in this case kind of kind of law, which um, doesn't make any sense. But we also, it's also not clear. Of course, like the most alarming thing about the Nganda judgment, I think, is that it doesn't tell us what the limits of the public protector's powers are. She has wide ranging powers that are sourced in the constitution that are binding, right? Then we had, uh, she was taken to court a month or so ago um, by the commission of SARS who argued that her subpoena powers do not extend to taxpayer information, right? So SARS firstly is a, legis is a legislative body and it's not a constitutional body like the public protector. That's one important distinction. So 
in the constitutional scheme of things, right, it should rank lower than um, than the office of the president, than the office of the NDPP, than the office of the public protection, right? And but now the court says in this case that no, the public protect does not have subpoena power over taxpayer information, which is in SARS's um, under SARS's control, which may be an interesting argument from um, a privacy point of view and not what not, but from a constitutional point of view, it's not an, an unreasonable argument for the public protector to make that if she is able to command the highest office in the constitutional scheme, which is the president, why is she not able to command um, the NDPP or the commissioner of SARS, right? And this also is a kind of argument that's being made um, or that has been made recently by the EFF in its um, appeal to the Constitutional Court against the interim interdict in the Praveen review, right? So there, the president sought uh, an interdict, interim interdict against the implementation of um, the remedial action, one of which was that um, the president must discipline uh, public enterprises minister Pravin Gordon. The president sought uh, an interim interdict and was granted one. The public protector then apply, um, applied for leave to appeal to the Corn Court. That was granted. She then later um, purported to withdraw. Um, but the EFF on its own also um, appealed to the Corn Court. And one of their arguments in that case was that interim interdict against the public protector should be harder to get than interim interdict against the executive, right? So the whole argument is that there's a case, the outer case, um, in which about ETOLs, in which the court said that where an interim interdict is sought against the exercise of uh, statutory power by the executive, uh, specifically pertaining to like a policy issue, courts should not grant those easily, right? They should only grant them in exceptional circumstances and where they are convinced that there would not be any separation of powers harms that could come from that. So what the EFF argued in this case is if it's that getting an interdict against the implementation of a of remedial action by the public protector should be more difficult than getting an interdict against the implementation of policy by the executive. So that just gives you an idea of where you know people consider this office to fit in because not only is it elevated to the level of um, an arm of state so the fourth arm of state let's and i'm just being facetious but 
it's elevated to the to the point where it's okay to argue that it should be made harder for people to get interim interdicts against um, the implementation of 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 affirmative of 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 of, of remedial action because we don't know what the limits of the powers of the office are. Who's to say it's unreasonable? Who's to say that it is not a fair argument to make and say, listen, this is a the public protector deserves heightened constitutional protection exactly because she has constitutionally sourced binding powers that extend to the command of, you know, um, to, 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 to command the exercise of discretionary power. And, I mean, it's, it sounds ridiculous now to say that there was something that she, she ever thought that she could com- uh, uh, um, order parliament to amend the constitution, but is it really, like, that unreasonable? Like, I don't think so. And people, you know, when they talk about um, Advocate Nkwebani, they talk as if she got into the office and arrogated to herself this power that she never had. Whereas the reality is no one, all she knew was that she had the power to make binding orders. And that's all she knew. And that's all we knew as well, right? We didn't know against whom, to what extent, on what subject matters, except for, you know, um, um, stuff that's delineated in, 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 in the Public Protector Act. But she was always going to have a different uh, tenure because she started off her term with um, binding powers, which the the two previous um, public protectors did not have. Right? So the idea behind this um, paper that I want to write is to evaluate the relationship of the public protector or relationship between the public protector and other um, constitutional bodies and constitutional organs insofar as her power to issue binding orders against them is, is concerned, right? which is a question of looking at the structure of the constitution and you know, evaluating um, developments after Ngandla and seeing how far um, the courts have kind of dialed back um, her powers um, and trying to like figure out the outer limits of those powers. Let me know uh, what you think. Um, this is a pretty long episode. Apologies for that. I didn't intend for it to be this long, but uh, that's just how how passionate I am about this subject. Cheers.